fabulous listeners. Thanks for tuning in to All Bodies Outside. This is your host, Dr. Brian Peterson. This episode's guest is the Emmy-winning legendary nature recordist, Gordon Hempton. Gordon, it's an honor to have you on All Bodies Outside, and I wanted to start this episode with saying thank you for your decades of work. Oh, well, thank you, Brian. Um, It's been a passionate experience, I have to tell you that. I didn't know that I would do what I've done. Um, I just started out being a curious listener and wanting to get better at it. Yeah, and I, I love that you really fell in love with the process of it. It wasn't, you know, something that was looking for a destination. It seemed like you just fell in love with the process. Well, I think everyone falls in love with information that they trust. And what better information than what your senses are telling you? And that's the real experience to get outdoors. You know, isn't it amazing that when we do get outdoors, that what we see inspires us and what we hear inspires us and we in all the senses when we're in a natural place like a park, at least should, all the, our senses are no longer arguing with each other. We aren't like in the city where I am now in Seattle. I'm not looking at this beautiful view of Elliott Bay and the trees and then talking to somebody, right? The auditory cue, talking to someone uh, thousands of miles away and then smelling whatever my wife is cooking downstairs. So it's like not entirely making sense. So it's no wonder if we don't get out in nature that life can be a little confusing at times, but get to nature and um, we can make sense of the world. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you you got me excited for, I got a, a summer backpacking trip in the Northern sections of Yosemite coming up in August uh, with my wife. Oh, and, oh um, yes. Last night we actually fell asleep, listened to some of your sounds on YouTube, some of your recordings. And uh, oh, yeah. we were, we were talking about, gosh, like it's going to be nice to just get out and be still and kind of just be out in nature. Oh, I, well, I have an excellent book for you to read to prepare yourself for Yosemite. Um, it's the, it's called the Eight Wilderness Discovery Books. Um, it's uh, the assembly of eight separate books written by John Muir, of which you know John Muir is credited in the 1800s of being our father of our national parks, and he was instrumental in having Yosemite become a national park. But it wasn't a slam dunk for him. I mean, it was a state park, a federal reserve. And now it was going to become a national park and the John of the mountains would have to come out of the mountains and talk in a political way. And, um, and I, and he did, but what, what he did to prepare himself for that, because he was undecided is that he went to Tuolumne Meadows where there's a place called Soda Springs and he slept there. And in the morning, he woke up with the decision to join the campaign and move on to the person that history knows him as today. So I was very curious. This was in 93, I believe, 94. I went to Yosemite and spent two years studying the life of John Muir and recording the sounds that he wrote about in his journal. And I very much wanted to lay down and sleep 
at Soto Springs so I could hear what John Muir heard. And it was the middle of the night. It was absolutely covered with snow. It was real cold, starry night. Um, but I heard nothing but silence and then a very soft breeze through the pines. And, but I thought, John Muir, he didn't sleep standing up. Okay. So I laid down uh, at Soda Springs and oh my God, just a quarter inch ear, just ear to the ground listening. And it sounds like a mariachi band. It's just so much clicking away, the drumming, the trumpeting, all the Soda Springs. It was total music. It wasn't musical. It was music. I mean, you could actually dance in the snow if you could listen to it so high up. This is without any human intervention. So where does it come from? You know, the music beyond human hands or intelligence or anything. And that's a, you know, that's a question. And to save that opportunity, to save that mystery, to save that fascination and con deep connection with, in this case, deep earth, right? I think is what motivated um, John to come out of the mountains, join the campaign and, um, you know, write all the many wonderful books that he did. Yeah, um, I have read the mountains of California. Um, I have read um, the one his first trip to Yosemite where he started in the Central Valley of California yeah. and took the sheep up. Um, and was protecting the sheep up there. I've read that one. I forget the name of the title mm -hmm. of that one, but um, you know, that camping experience, that story you just told about John Muir being out. Um, when I was preparing for this episode, um, I, I came across something that you talked about how John Muir at nighttime would use the sound of wind through the Yosemite Valley to navigate him with his way through Yosemite. And I was like, right. Gordon, how did you right. know that? Right. And so that explains your uh, research yeah. on him. Yeah, well, the research on him, as well as my training, is in botany. And, you know, John Muir was a botanist as well as a geologist. Never got a college degree, but he certainly got quite an education um, with all his time close to nature. In fact, he was the first person to interpret um, the creation of Yosemite landform the way it is due to glaciation, of which he was mocked by the Geological Society as you know a lunatic because he couldn't possibly go up there and actually see the striations the glacial striations on the side of half dome and everything like that but he did and he pointed out where they were come on let's go <laughs> so you know he was really really an adventurous guy um who knew and in fact he's probably the best mentor of anyone today in reading his books on how to become a better listener because he literally 
on every page of his journals uses the words um, voice, music, song to describe nature and knew very well in his description of storm in the high Sierras, for example, that every species of plant makes its own sound in the wind or rain. And as you climb in elevation in any area, the predominant trees uh, do change, right? From the long leaf, which is a low tone, um, and then to the, to the shorter needled alpine crumholtz, um, to higher pitched wind. And it's fascinating. So um, you can actually listen to the wind wherever you go. And that becomes a signature of the place itself. So um, that's great. And his favorite wind was uh, the yellow pine. Um, and the yellow pine is the tree which grows at the John Muir website over his grave in Martinez, California, at the original homestead. Yeah. Nice, nice. Um, yeah. Well, I have seen that you said that plants, they are the musical score. Oh, they, they certainly are. And not only the mu musical score, we have so much to thank plants for. You know, every breath we take comes from a plant source, even if it's phytoplankton in the sea, the jungles, in the Amazon. And um, and also wildlife live so closely associated to the plants, bees simply because the flowers are there. So there'll be the hum of the bees shortly after the sun rises to remove the dew. And there that creates the whole sequence of the vegetation. Um, you not only forms who is there to sing and to speak, but also the acoustic. So the acoustic being how the sound behaves in that wilderness amphitheater. And that is really defining. Not only do different habitats have different fundamental frequencies, but the echo, for example, uh, is, you know, prairies and deserts are a free field, fairly echoless, although you would do would through astute listening get a little echo off of the saguaro cactus and get a little echo off of some of the riparian trees in desert areas. Um, but you, you listen to any ambient recording for even two seconds and you know what habitat it came from. You don't even maybe have enough information to know the species, but you know what habitat for sure. It all sounds so unique. Um, the world, I like to say, is in fact a solar powered jukebox, right? And as we go closer to the equator and we get a more even distribution of sunlight throughout the year, we also provided that the solar panels, the leaves that are there, um, provided if they're there, then you have the power to drive the bioacoustic system. But even in the tropics, just like a battery, if you climb in elevation and there are alpine uh, environments in, in equatorial latitudes, um, it gets cold. And a battery, when a battery is cold, everything slows down. And so it begins to get sparse. But as we move further north, 
into the temperate latitudes, we get this uneven distribution of daily solaration. And so we get this variety of concerts. You know, spring is real rock and roll, is preseason. Then we get into our summer slumber, right, which is the storing of that energy as much as we can, the, the magnitude of the insects as they begin, as they continue to feast on the plants, and then they climax in the fall. And then fall does have what's beautiful about the fall is when the day length of spring, which cues to all the avian brains that it's time to sing swings around again and the day length becomes the same in the fall they begin to sing again not as jubilantly but they're so well rehearsed right from having done it the season before that's my favorite time to listen to birds and it's a brief period generally here at this latitude on the olympic peninsula um, you know, like it's it's in September, early September, mid-September, that is really the sweet spot. Uh, the, the big leaf maple is now really firm in its leaves and about to drop, and they create a distinct r rustling sound, right, of which is uh, similar to applause, right, as you could imagine, especially when the big blow comes through. And all the rustle happens at once and the leaves fall, descend to the moss. Oh, there's just so much to hear and then to listen to. Um, and I stress listening because the sad fact is that most adults today are actually suffer from noise-induced hearing loss. We live in that noisy of a world. So they can't hear as well, all right? Um, but I know from my own experience as an aging person with hearing loss, you can still listen, no matter what you listen how to. You can still listen and actually hear so much more than when you were young and fully able to. It's, it's so information filled at so many levels. Um, and once you plug into that information flow, you really can't walk away from it because there's that very special connection that, well, you know, I think that in the simple question, that we can ask ourselves, which is, the bird is just singing. It doesn't sing for my benefit. So why is it music to my ears? And why is it? And also, why is the human ear perfectly tuned, not to the human voice, but to birdsong? right? That by listening, getting our information through our senses, rather than through the online sources and, and studying long coursework, we also need to 
augment that with the direct experience and ask these questions which don't have definitive answers, but understand that the earth is our home, we evolved here, and everything we experience is the result of past experiences. And how do we fit in to the environment? And I think for anyone that goes out to national parks or public lands, U.S. Forest Service lands, whatever it is, what you just described is so physiologically and spiritually important for humans to be out in natural sounds. It sure is. It sure is. And it's, I was going to say, sad that we have prioritized vision so highly in our culture and let noise inundate practically every corner of the world and have not only its impacts on wildlife, but impacts on the quality of our experiences. Um, I mean, literally, I, I think that we prioritize vision, which think about it is kind of weird that if that's our priority sense that we can turn it off, doesn't sound like a survival strategy. We can close our eyes and that not only that, but when my eyes are open, I only see to the surface of objects, not what's behind it. Yeah. But, you know, when we look at our ears, I don't see any way of turning it off. It's 24 seven information flow that goes even through walls and around corners day and night. No, the natural sequence of an indigenous people that are still living in the wild is that they hear something first, then they look second. And they decide, hey, you know, this is interesting. I'll get closer, maybe smell it, touch it, taste it. You know, there's this whole cascading sequence of data acquisition. Or you can just say, well, I'm getting out of here, right? And, and so the distance of what you can gather information, you know, the distance to the auditory horizon, the furthest sound that you can hear, is the personal space that is fundamentally important towards our survival at a very deep level. And so as soon as we find ourselves as modern people in a situation that we can't hear the faint sounds, all right, we can't hear the faint sounds and we can't hear for a certain distance, close to a quarter mile minimum, all right, the body knows intrinsically, ah, oh, I have to rely on sight to compensate for the sensory loss and a lack of flow. And that's extremely stressful. And that's why, in my opinion, um, you know, noise pollution is associated with higher levels of cortisol, stress, uh, you know, heart disease and, and all kinds of issues that basically shorten your life. Uh, World, World Health Organization has already calculated the million of human life years lost each year in Western Europe as the result of just transportation noise, wow. right? It has, it has real consequences. And, um, and so I think we're right about at the point that we're ready to make the big leap and say, maybe vision 
shouldn't be just number one. Maybe all our senses are here for a reason to make sense of the world, and they all carry equal value. And let's not dumb down our lives, and let's not dumb down our environment. And let's get back to um, you know a really quality of life that just so happens also sustains the earth. Isn't that great? Yeah. You know. When we go to the when we go to the least noise polluted areas left on Earth, what do we find? We find the ecosystems that are most intact, where carbon dioxide is being taken out of the environment, oxygen is being produced, and endangered species are thriving. All right, they're the models. The land itself has intelligence. All we need to do is trust, and the beginning of trust is listening. When you listen to, you know, for example, Zabalo River Wilderness Quiet Park, our first quiet park uh, for Quiet Parks International, when we listen to that place, it tells us so much more than we would imagine. So much more about what a quality of life outdoors means that I now prepare people before we go down to that destination in the Amazon because they think the Amazon is going to be the big difference. Oh yeah, well, the Amazon is different for sure. But the real difference in their life is what I call the after zone. And that is when they come home. Mm -hmm. And home is so different. And they have to ask themselves how they're going to settle for what this place that now feels lonely and strange. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's it's so important with the work you're doing with quiet planet which you know is a library of nature recordings mm -hmm. but i also mm -hmm. wanted to connect everything you said to kind of what got us connected in the first place mm -hmm. and that was mm -hmm. that i reached out to you talking about my research that focuses on one of the most yeah. pervasive sources of noise and that is aircraft and i research uh, specifically aircraft over national parks with a focus on low-level aircraft to try to manage them now, managing aircraft, there's a lot of variety of aircraft. There's major airlines, there's air tours, and there's other stuff. But the way that we are analyzing this aircraft is we're connect, uh, collecting a type of data called ADSB, which stands for Automatic Dependent Surveillance Broadcast. And that's a lot of jargon terms. Essentially, mm -hmm. it's uh, aircraft getting GPSed up, and then they use a radio signal to transmit out to other aircraft and say, hey, this is where I'm at. And we figure out mm -hmm. a way to collect that data. And what's nice about collecting that data is you have a unique identification code for that aircraft that you can connect to a public database, the FAA releasable database. You can see yeah. uh, who owns that aircraft. What type of aircraft is it? What type of engine do they have? And so um, when before we started recording, Gordon, I talked about um, a preliminary report that we're <clears throat> putting together for Olympic National Park. And we had mm -hmm. our ADSB data out there collected from July 21st of 2021 to 
yes. January 3rd of 2023. So we're talking about a year and a half here. And in that time, yes. we collected um, 60,662. Let me start that over. 60,662. <laughs> yeah. It's a big flights. number. <laughs> yeah. And I, I got to imagine yeah. it wasn't like yeah. that when you first started going out till. Oh, no, no. Um, that is the unintended consequence of adding another runway at SeaTac, um, doubling in the last 20 years, the air traffic going to Asia, the FAA assigning Olympic Park as the preferred flight path to jets, both cargo and passenger, northbound to Alaska. Um, and and this is where we have a deep communication problem between the National Park Service, which has a mandate to preserve and protect its natural resources, including natural quiet and the natural soundscape, and is not given um, jurisdiction over air traffic above it. And the FAA has a mandate to protect public safety, which basically means disperse traffic, okay, and it doesn't have a mandate to protect the environment. And so these may be the little nitty gritty details of how things need to be shaped, but they really do need to be shaped by God. These are, um, you know, our most treasured natural places in the United States and particularly Olympic National Park, which up until the expansion of SeaTac and up until the expansion of military aircraft over the park for warfare exercises, basically practice, that um, it was the noise-free interval was commonly hours long before you might hear an aircraft. There is virtually um, only a handful of air tours because we're cloudy most of the year, okay? I mean, why would you go up in an airplane for flight seeing when you're going to be looking at the tops of clouds? Okay. So nothing developed. Uh, it was not intentional. The result of planning that Olympic Park was the least noise polluted national park in the lower 48. But something that was very interesting to me and caused me early in my career to actually move to Olympic Park and record it more closely is it's also sonically the most diverse. Some people call it three parks in one. You have Alpine environment, which are the grinding of the glaciers, the sharp chirp um, the of the Olympic marmot, an, an endemic species there. And science, for example, has known that while those sharp chirps, such as what a prairie dog does, all sound the same to our ears, it's the densest information known to science because it, there's just that high frequency is so tight together that signatures in the information, if you happen to be a prairie dog or a marmot, you can tease it out to incredible. Uh, detail. And then you have the second environment, which is the um, coniferous forest. It's the largest undivided coniferous forest in the entire West. Okay. And also the best example of temperate rainforest in the Northern Hemisphere. Now we're only two 
we're only, you know, two thirds of the way through the habitats. All right. And then we have the longest stretch of uninterrupted wilderness seashore, which I'm a great fan of the Olympic seashore um, in Rialto Beach in particular because of the huge driftwood logs that are there and they become musical instrument and amphitheater all in one. Oh boy, it'll just blow your mind to walk inside of a Sitka spruce log and hear, uh, you know, the world's biggest violin. Oh man. And, and all that happens in there, um, you know, again, like Soda Springs, it's like mysterious, miraculous, deeply moving. And you're, you're, you know, you're no longer worried about the world. You're just glad to be alive. You know, you're just glad to be alive. And that's, that's the takeaway from that kind of experience. Well, um, but today, Olympic National Park, which I tried for 13 years to have it become a quiet park, okay, hold itself out publicly as a quiet park and become the first place on earth to be defended from all noise pollution. But the answer I got from people and the park administration living in a quiet corner of the United States is, why do we need to save something that will never be endangered? Oh, wow. Now, they don't ask that question today. They said that when the noise-free interval was hours long. And today, the noise-free interval on a typical day is less than 15 minutes. Also, the most common interruption is military af um, aircraft which um, becomes an excluding event. And so Olympic National Park uh, doesn't even qualify as a wilderness quiet park today uh, by the standards of Quiet Parks International. But doesn't mean that it can't become that in the future. We just have to clean it up. And I wonder, so... My understanding is the National Park Service is starting to focus on soundscape management plans. And first off, those plans have to be informed and they're trying to figure out baseline levels for all these parks, right? And so a baseline level, you hear yeah. that, you, you already <clears throat> think like that has some anthropogenic noise introduced to it. And so what are they yeah, use what they are, yeah. right. Um, what they use for baseline data is not real baseline data. What they use for baseline data is impacted resources. Well, if they're gonna use that as the baseline on what they're going to improve upon, that's great. But yeah. let's not call that a natural soundscape. Um, that's the conditions as they exist today. But, you know, you're an academic. It's fascinating to study, but do we really need to study it I mean, when we just listen, why do we even need to fly over a wilderness area? Because I've done the number crunching, okay? And to fly around a wilderness area, such as Olympic, it takes less than a minute of flight time and it takes less than a dollar 
to each ticketed passenger for paying fly, for paying for the aircraft, paying for fuel consumption, paying for insurance, paying interest on the bank loan, done all this provided by the Air Transport Association, less than a dollar. And yet I fly out of SeaTac all the time. I travel as a lifestyle. And yet we spend 15 minutes after we've pulled away from the gate to leave on time so we can get the third food cart. And we could have avoided 15 wilderness areas in our flight. It's, it's not a matter of even cost. It's a matter of prioritizing what we want. And wouldn't you, when you're paying $500 for at least pay a dollar so that people in wilderness area could be, have a pristine experience. And so there are no bad guys here that um, say, I hate quiet. <laughs> I love, you know, the sound of noise pollution. Um, but people do ask when they're in a busy downtown, noisy place and not quiet themselves. Why is quiet important? Because we forget. Yeah. And I think that some, you know, I think that's the great thing about your work, your decades of work is, is reminding people of this relationship with planet earth that, you know, was so important that we have. And I think that, you know, going back to what you said earlier, making sure people have that connection is, is a major it's, it's, it's a nice way to get people to boost their conservation ethic to see these things. And I think going back to talking about aircraft over Olympic, it's just that people, they're not thinking about this stuff because they live in a noise polluted world. Um, and so looking at the aircraft over Olympic, there's a clear waypoint over the park. We can see every flight going up to Alaska kind of goes straight like yep. this, hits that yep. waypoint and then curves to the West or goes straight line to the West up to Alaska. There's a waypoint right over the park. So every major airline hits that waypoint. Um, and then goes up to Alaska. And then, you know, as you're talking about earlier with military aircraft growlers going right over, um, they could go around that easily and it probably wouldn't take them much time at all. Um, and those growlers right. are, you know, extremely loud. Um, you know, it sounds like a catastrophic event is going on or something. Um, yeah, and that's for sure. Things, yeah. If you, if you don't know that it's a growler flying overhead because you can't, it's really hard to see them. Um, you'd, you'd think that a flash flood or an avalanche was about to occur and you're trying to pay attention. You're wondering which, where, which way is it coming from? What do I do? It's, it's like a fire drill that's totally unnecessary for your nature experience on the ground. It's not subtle, but even subtle events such as a commercial jetliner flying at 40,000 feet midday that you might hardly notice. And even the most conservative of us might think, well, what income impact could that really have? Even on wildlife, they're so much louder than that. But if you're an owl feeding at night and you need to hear the faint rustlings of a rodent underneath the leaves at 50 feet, maybe a light covering of snow. And that's what you're going to use to feed 
you know, that's not going to allow you to forage, to be successful in the hunt. No, we need to shift gears to know that in the world that we've created, this play it loud world, we give importance to the squeaky wheel, what is loud. But in nature, what is loud is common information. The whole thrust of evolution has been to gather more and more information to be the first one to know. And that means faint sounds. Faint sounds are the most important sound. And when we do that, when we go to a quiet park, for example, and this is an exercise that we can do now, and um, right here, even though we have headphones on and everything like that, because sounds in our environment, you know, if there's something loud outside, it not only travels through the wall, but will travel through the headphones. Um, pretty amazing. And this is a li listening exercise that I think really brings us into the present moment and the real choices we have in front of us. So, Brian, let's take a moment. Don't answer this to me out loud, but just think about this. What is the furthest sound you can hear? And as we give it time, and let's give it time, the sounds come from further and further away. We eventually reach our auditory horizon, and that defines our area of awareness. Now, what is the faintest sound you can hear? Let's listen for a moment. What is the, huh, what is the faintest sound I can hear? That determines the threshold, the resolution that you can obtain from the information that's coming towards you from all directions. But now let's not listen for a sound. Let's just listen to the place, all sounds at once. Let's just listen to this place. And notice what you feel. Every place has a feeling. The summary of all your senses. You don't need to think about it. You don't need to explain it. You just need to feel it. And as you go through your day, and as you make your travels, your trips, your vacations, your outdoor experiences, do this. And you'll notice that the more you do it, the more sophisticated discerning your feelings become. 
and that when you arrive at a place that feels really good, you don't know why. You don't need to know why. But it feels really good. Sit down. Take a deep breath for all the good oxygen the plants have given us. Relax and take it all in. And over the hour or two that you might spend there, it wouldn't surprise me at all if you find artifacts of ancient people. We, today, live in bodies that have essentially been unchanged for 65,000 years, but come humans, all species of humans, I think there were 32 or 30 something, two and a half to three million years old in a world that was radically different from ours today. But we still are our ancestors and we still need to make sense of the world. And that's why when we feel lost at our busy desks and through fragmenting our senses through all the devices that we carry, the wilderness, the true wilderness is more important than it's ever been before. Because we are here today because of the successful choices of our ancestors. And we will make the successful choices to continue towards a prosperous future. But those decisions will not be made here. The clear thinking happens in the wilderness. Yeah, that was wonderful, Gordon. Yeah. I've spent, I've spent oh, countless years, more than four decades on this path of trying to become a better listener. I've acquired what I can from reading all the literature that was available to me now, but I quickly learned that all that literature was written by people who never really spent a lot of time outdoors. And as I worked and, you know, the longest I spent to record a single individual species was six weeks when my wife was carrying our first child and we were camped out in a trailer and every morning I would get up and ride the tide in a canoe to an island, then hike in three and a half miles to record the northern spotted owl in a small patch of old growth cedar took six weeks to finally be successful. And when you really live close to nature, you really understand that we are just a part, and many times an arrogant part, that think that we can study and know something so complex as nature that we can control and we know what is right. And in every past major civic civil engineering feat like damming um, rivers and putting embankments on the side to prevent flooding and the replenishing of topsoil in the Midwest to you name it. Eventually we find out that we didn't consider all the facts. 
So I was really impressed with David Attenborough suggested that the formula for our future success is to have a third of the planet, I believe he said, a third of the planet return to wild. And then we can continue to make our mistakes with the rest and everything else will continue to survive. <laughs> and that would include quiet, but still we have our own spiritual journey. It would not be enough to stay home, to stay indoors. We owe it to ourselves and our own defining of the reasons why we are alive to venture out into the wilderness and know in the real and direct terms of which we were simply born to be. I really liked your note about how is it that humans think they know what's best for nature? Yeah. And the answer that I find is we think that because we produce such amazing, impressive reports that you cannot argue. When you look at the data and the pidograms and the flow charts and the amount of intelligence it took to go through massive data and come up with these conclusions is impressive. How can you argue? I mean, what would you just say? I don't believe it. Okay. But when we look back, even those impressive things don't cover all the bases. We need to ask ourselves, just because we can doesn't mean we should, right? And Charles Lindbergh is, was, is a great inspiration to my life. He has many quotes of which he says, the advances of science and technology can only be measured in how it improves the quality of life, not just for us, but all life. So I gotta imagine there's gonna be some listeners out there that are feeling pretty inspired right now. And oh, I hope so. I hope so. I hope so. And those that aren't feeling inspired, those that might be still in the doom and gloom section of the bleachers that they know the earth is coming to an end and we're all tragically flawed, go to a quiet place. It's a fountain of inspiration. You cannot be in a quiet place without becoming quiet yourself. And when you are quiet, you are clear and you can ask yourself any question. So I have a little trick that I do when a journalist comes and visits me and wants to hike to one square inch up the hoe. We get out of the car. I know that they've spent possibly days, at least a full day through noisy transportation to get to this spot. And now we're going to begin. Okay. We slam the car doors, get out, beep, beep, car's locked. We begin on the trail and then I pause immediately and I go, so do you think the silence can be saved? And they squirm. In every case, they kind of squirm because they come from this, well, on this hand, there's this, and on this hand, there's this. And they, the best they can come up with is they're uncertain. And we go in. This happened before the growler activity and the doubling 
of the aircraft and we go in and experience the quiet and we become quiet and then half on our half on our walk halfway out from one square inch of silence we sit down beside the beautiful whole river and we just enjoy the day and we're you know we're not chatty or anything like that and i look over and i go so do you think the silence can be saved and they look at me and go of course Of course. So anyone who has their doubts, go to a quiet place. You know, it's life is so much worthwhile when you recognize the prosperous future, everything around us that we've created and we can recreate differently. The choices are ours and the place to make those choices is in a quiet place. Gordon, yeah. I, I did have this accompany me today. Um, <laughs> you recognize? Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, that's great. Yeah, I um, came across one square inch of silence. What I looked at it. It was published in two thousand eight. Is that correct? Uh, two thousand nine. It came out okay. in hardbound, and in two thousand, and about a year later, it came out in paperback. Yeah. Okay, and I, I first came across it, I believe I read it in 2015. I was a master's student at the University of Utah, but I figured that'd be a good time to kind of pull it out since you just gave that story uh, of a journalist yeah. and, you know, walking over to one square inch of silence. Um, now, furthermore, in terms of inspired audience members that are listening to this episode, what if someone's like, gosh, like, I really love what Gordon's talking about. It's really, you know, like I feel it and I want to go be, I want to go listen and just listen, you know, and just listen and be and be here the, with the pun there. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. How do you recommend people get started in terms of technology? Now, I noticed that you use a you, you, you have a, a mic that you just love. Um, it's an Omni mic. It picks up sound in all directions. I think it's called the Newman sure. KU mic. Um, and that's yep. kind of expensive probably to get started with. Like I think it is. Yeah, I, I'm glad you've raised this question, Brian. Because just because you want to become a better listener, don't for a moment think you can just go anywhere and say, I'm going to listen and you will. The brain is full of tricks. You have tons of bad habits. I still do, you know, and and so the the shortest workaround is to get a handheld digital recorder and believe it or not, your smartphone does have recording mode and there are apps that allow you to do that but also they're inexpensive units um, that are meant for voice but better quality ones like the a10 or the d10 that sony produces um, and with your earbuds or headphones you can plug in and the brain rather than playing its tricks goes i really want to hear what the device is hearing and then immediately, no matter where you are, you go, wow, there's so much going on. Okay. But now your brain knows there's so much going on. And then you take off the headphones or unplug the earbuds and the brain still hears all those things that are going on, but now they're faint. You see, we give our attention to what is loud, but the natural way of listening is giving your attention to the first information, which is faint. 
So by doing this over and over again, the brain immediately goes not to what is loud, that's obvious, immediately goes to what is faint, which is either near high frequency information or very distant low frequency information, two kinds of signals, two sources of information that you can learn quickly how they both provide different kinds of messages. Uh, high frequencies do attenuate quickly. So those are short, um, intimate conversations that are available between you and other nature. Um, and then the low frequency does travel huge distances, elephants, whales, stuff like that, use it all the time for hundreds of miles. Um, traffic is clearly audible for uh, 20 miles and when you're in the right atmospheric conditions. And um, that, by the way, if you do the math, a circle, uh, a land surface area with a 20 mile radius is over a thousand square miles. So just driving down, the, you can see how this whole thing, um, but still, let's not talk about the noise. What a boring conversation. Let's not talk about what we don't want. Let's talk about what we do want, because then we're on the path. Then we're going to come up with our answers and we'll get there. So um, try using your smartphone or a small handheld recorder and then go to quietparks.org. All right. Uh, that is our website. And there we have a map that shows you all the candidate locations around planet Earth um, that are being considered um, as we're able for quiet parks and quiet conservation areas. And also, if you have a quiet place that you really personally enjoy and you want to add to its protection in future public hearings and everything like that, nominate it. We give all nominations serious consideration. Okay. Yep. That's good to hear because I, I did go to quietparks.org last night and uh, I saw that there's not a single site in the state of Kansas. Oh, okay. Well, and I want to so, tell you. I want to tell you. I prepared a special list for you because I know you're in Kansas. You're in Manhattan. Yeah. Okay. That's right. And so I went through my archive um, right before we got online here and the Flint Hills. Oh yes, my God, the at. Flint Hills, amazing, amazing. Um, and you know, the whole, uh, the whole Midwest is extremely difficult to find quiet because so much agriculture and development right. and everything. But Kansas is really lucky. Northern Nebraska is really lucky. There are certain places, Caney Creek. Oh my gosh. Parts of Caney Creek are so amazing. Um, the amphitheater created by the, the gently, cause you know, you're having nearly level water flow. And so you can have substantial water flow and just have it be so delicate and a great reflective surface for your excellent songbirds. Oh man, Kansas just really kills it on not only the Eastern meadowlark, there's some Western meadowlark, but most of all, they're the hybrids that occur between Eastern and Western meadowlark. And they are the, they, they just knock it dead when they do their little improvise so much so that the other birds will actually shut up to listen, you know, because it's, it really happens at that special moment. They're busy listening just like we are. The Finney, Quivera, and the Jip Hills, which are also, you know, the Red Hills, 
Um, I'm uncertain though about the Jip Hills. That's where I um, had, you know, met a herd of wild horses and had a great experience with them back in 1990. But when I went online to check out how the Jip Hills are doing today, and I saw that it's a scenic byway, all right, oh. and unknown to the creation when we were thinking in our, you know, somewhat limited yet arrogant wisdom that we're going to create scenic byways, highways, and all these other ways of enjoying the world through our windshields that we are creating for the systematic extinction beginning in the 60s of natural quiet, all right? And so, mm, don't know about that, but you still have some great places. Kansas is, uh, you know, um, human evolution occurred on the grasslands. Come on, you know, we're all meant to hear that. And the, the songbirds, um, in, because open areas like grasslands are often windy areas, okay? And that's why the grasslands exist is because they burn and the wind feeds the burn and keeps back the forest and all of that. But in order for the song to perform over any distance, the songbirds have to use amplitude modulation as well as frequency modulation. So soft to loud, low to high, all these sorts of changes, which is total music. Yeah. It's like, oh man, it's the most musical, the, the, the wind itself, plus creating windblown bird song. That's the ultimate. That totally is. And we haven't even gotten to evening with the coyotes and the frogs and toads. Oh gosh. Kansas is killer stuff. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, and I'm luckily situated right in the Flint Hills. I'm uh, so the university is in Manhattan and I live about um, from the Western the western edge of Manhattan, I am 20 miles to the east in a little town of 5,000 people called Wamigo. And Wamigo. I typically go out to a heritage park in the mornings. I went out there about 545 this morning. Um, it's called Mount Mitchell Heritage Park. And it's, it's a beautiful place. It's got many aspects of heritage, which is fantastic on the history front, um, including which I did not even know. The Underground Railroad ran through Kansas and it ran through this area. Wow. And that is something that's part of that heritage component of Mount Mitchell. Now, going back to the fact that it's an ag state, it is surrounded by dirt roads to access farmland. And so you have vehicles that are using those, those dirt roads and Mount Mitchell's only um, it's, it's run by a nonprofit. They do a fantastic job, but it's only about 165 acres, give or take a few acres. Yeah. Um, yeah. and so, you know, they're doing the best they can with that. But so yeah, the Flint Hills are lovely. Yeah. Yeah. I would recommend that the next time you stop there, you talk with the managers and let them know that even small parcels of lands, they don't have to be a wilderness area. Even small parcels of lands can become a certified quiet conservation area. So that besides people seeing that it is a preserve, they can see that it's a quiet conservation area. And when we, when we see labels like that exist, we'll most likely know that that's not a good place for target practice. Pick another spot. Um, not a good place for uh, off-road vehicles. Let's pick another spot, you know, 
or flight seeing even. So it's a way to hold out publicly what the intended use of the land is, not exclusively, but one of the intents. Well, I, I serve on the board there, so I will. Oh, okay. Whoa. Yeah, I just made a sales pitch. There you go, Gordon. <laughs> I, I'm very <laughs> fond of Mount Mitchell. I love Mount Mitchell a lot. Um, another designation that we are aiming to uh, pursue this fall is the International Dark, uh, Dark Sky Association yeah. mm-hmm. um, designation. We have no lights at Mount Mitchell other than there's a couple farmhouses nearby, but they really probably mm-hmm. don't do too much pollution of the night sky there. Um Switching the conversation a little bit, you know, mm, going back sure. to scenic byways and mm-hmm. accessibility to these places and mm-hmm. windshield accessibility. Um, have you come across the 1964 Redwoods Act before? No, no. What does so, it say? This is new to me. And so I was actually um, going over a snapshot report of some ADSB data, some overflight data for um, Hawaii Volcanoes National Park. And mm-hmm. um in the introduction of that snapshot report, very short introduction, maybe a few paragraphs, I wrote that national parks have a dual mandate. They're managed for conservation and they're managed for accessibility. And one of the managers there um, gave me some knowledge and said, hey, back in 1964, there is uh, the Redwoods Act was passed that says that if there is a major tension between conservation and accessibility, something's got to come first and it's conservation. And that's yes. what the Redwood Act, Redwood Act yes. says. <clears throat> mm-hmm. That was probably during Secretary Udall's reign. He was very specific about that. Um, when, you know, whenever you have a conflict between use of resources and the preservation of resources, the preservation of resources will endure. So, um, yes. And as far as like accessibility, when, the claim is made at Hawaii Volcanoes or Haleakala National Park, the two national parks in Hawaii, that helicopter tours offer accessibility for the handicap. Okay, I will say, well, then they should have a handicap, you know, card, some kind of certification, um, even if it's just the little card that they take off their rental car to um, get their ticket to fly. All right, and let's see how many we come up with that way. But also I was contacted by Wilma, a blind hiker who lived in Chicago and made the trip all the way out to hike with her husband. And um, she was so disappointed after making the great trip that the only view she had, which was listening, was robbed by flight seers. All right. So I don't buy in. First of all, I will further argue that you cannot have a wilderness experience from a helicopter, period. No, no, it's uh, that's the real discussion, not whether um, the American Disabilities Act allows people to access areas through aircraft. Right. Does that mean that wheelchair um, people will be helicoptered and landed in upper Yosemite, right, to join their family around the fire? Um, Because, no, no. We really need to continue the conversation, of course, in a friendly way, for some clear thinking, because when the problem is really looked at and asked the questions are 
the real questions are asked, the answers are so clear, so That's clear. Right. Yeah. They're off-road areas. What does it matter whether it's a, a jet in the sky or a car on the ground? It's an off-road area. You, you can't go there. No roads. Roadless. Yeah. It's a roadless area. Yeah. And with, you know, the legally speaking, the definition of federal wilderness is no motors allowed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I know. Uh, Charles Lindbergh. He has another quote that he says that if the choice were forced upon us that we had to make a choice between birds and airplanes, he would choose birds because in wilderness, the wilderness experience is absolutely essential for knowing who we are and the true value and meaning of everything we accomplish. Now, and uh, you you would know uh, perhaps that Charles Lindbergh is buried um, not far from Haleakala National Park, where the air tour management plan is, draft was just uh, concluded. The public comment period just concluded. I was disappointed though that the environmental assessment did not um, assess the no uh, air tour. Um, option, right? And I don't yeah. know how they make that decision. I know that um, at Badlands National Park, that's going to be the decision, but totally yeah, different that's, situation. That's the de decision there. Um, Glacier is okay. to be phased out. Um, and then Haleakala, aka the quietest place on earth. Um, it's not. No. It's like, okay, how did that happen? Because it, it's not to conserve natural resources and it doesn't enhance public safety. So however that decision was made, it did not achieve the goals of either of the two parties that had to sign off on the plan. Yeah. Now he's got a tough situation with that airport being the international airport being right near the oh. national you, park. And so Jackson Hole. Jackson, you're talking thing, about right like it's yeah. it's yeah when, yeah and i saw that i it was when i and i have another round of uh analyzing flights for haleakala but the first time i did it i was amazed by how many major airlines have to come in low over the national park um to get to the airport yeah <clears throat> that is true um but at haleakala the flight path seldom crosses the volcano because um, it's at the ridge is at 10,000 feet right. and it's like, what is it? 15 miles as the crow flies and you got to be down at sea level. So they come in at the saddle between East and West Maui. And, um, so that's not a problem. The only problem is, um, air tours. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Wow. Well, Gordon, um, I think we have come to the conclusion of our episode. I don't know if there's anything else that you want to chat about, but this is. Um, um, a lot well, I'll tell you, I would love to at any time talk with you about any of the problems that you hit or if you um, get a wild hair and want to come down and visit Zabalo River Wilderness Quiet Park. I, I go there a couple times each year just to keep all my marbles rolling in the same direction. 
It's such a rejuvenating experience. Let me know and um, we'll get together. It's been a joy to meet you today and thanks for having um, me on and giving me a chance for a voice. Yeah, Corey, well, I really appreciate it. It's, it's also been super enjoyable to meet you and we'll have to keep in touch. All right, wonderful. Okay, have a I'm good summer. On, yeah, you as well. Oh, yep. I'm gonna throw on Bye-bye. that outro music and we'll finish okay. up here. <laughs>